In just a moment, Ben's going to come and speak to us. But I'm going to give you, take us through our reading, uh, which is from Acts chapter 16. So if you've got the, the Bible there, we're looking at Acts chapter 16. Last week, if you were here, we, uh, we spent some time looking at Acts chapter 4, and one of the things we were, we were thinking through was how often the apostles, how often the disciples got arrested and uh, spent time in prison. And last week we were thinking about how the, the other followers used to, used to pray, and they were together in prayer uh, when that happened. And uh, in Acts chapter 16, we see Paul and Silas getting arrested again. And uh, Paul has confronted a woman who, uh, who's like a fortune teller and he's cast um, out a spirit from her and her owners are annoyed because she now can't tell people's fortunes. And that's where we pick it up in verse, in verse 19 of Acts chapter 16. When her owners realised that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptised. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. 
Thanks, Mark. You can leave your Bibles turned on if you want to. Oh, there's no plate. Oh. Great. Well, we're currently uh, keeping going with these uh, messages that are designed to prepare us for Vision Week and was thinking this morning about how the Gospel changes lives, which I think it will be an important subject for us. And um, we've come to this portion of Acts chapter 16, but in essence I really want us to think about the whole chapter, because in Acts chapter 16 you see three people whose lives are radically changed. Now, of course, this chapter is actually about the beginning of the church in Philippi, the beginning of the Philippian church. But within the story of how the church comes into being, there are three case studies of how Jesus and the gospel can really change your life. There's Lydia, there's the slave girl, and of course we've just heard Mark reading to us about the Philippian jailer. Now, we'll come to Lydia briefly a little bit later on, but first of all there's this slave girl uh, who's been essentially delivered from mental derangement, spiritual oppression, She's possessed by this demon, and while she's possessed by this demon, she has the gift of clairvoyancy. She can do some fortune-telling. And, of course, her her masters, her owners, are very pleased with this because it makes them a lot of money. But, after she gets delivered from the possession, she stops being an asset to them anymore, and they get very, very angry. When her owners realised that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They're really angry because the money-making clairvoyancy has gone because of what they've done. And they have them dragged into the marketplace and there they are beaten. And uh, it actually says they got the crowd to beat them. It says they were flogged, which means that they were beaten with rods. And that essentially means they'll have been in a very bloody state. They'll be bleeding. Probably means that there'll be broken bones, that they've got cracked ribs. And the magistrates let the crowds do it. There was no trial. After they had been severely flogged, it tells us in verse 23, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And that brings us to meet the third person, whose life gets radically changed. Um, Someone who becomes a Christian in the beginning of the planting of the church in Philippi. Yes, it's the Philippian jailer. What do we know about the, uh, the Philippian jailer? Well, he was a jailer, almost certainly because he was ex-military. People who were given these kind of jobs were Roman soldiers who had retired. Essentially, this was how you gave a Roman soldier who's retired a pension. You gave him a civil service job. So he would have been in his late 40s, early 50s at this point. And you give him this kind of job uh, because as a soldier, he'd have been very, very good at it. Um, He'd have been a good jailer. He knew about weapons, he knew about defence, he knew about how to keep prisoners. Therefore, he was uh, an excellent candidate for a jailer. So he's essentially a blue-collar worker. And he's a tough guy, civil servant, ex-military. And then, as I say, earlier on in this chapter, you have Lydia, who was an affluent, cosmopolitan business owner. And then you've got the slave girl who is mentally deranged. She's exploited by her masters. And now, add to that mix, you've got the Philippian jailer. And if you, I don't know, if you want to put these three people in a London context, 
You've got Lydia, who essentially owns a boutique on Bond Street. Uh, You've got the slave girl, who's a a drug-addicted prostitute, who's exploited by her pimps and is living in a pretty tough inner-city area. And then you've got the Philippian jailer, who's blue-collar, ex-military, civil servant, who lives in the suburbs. That's essentially what we have here. And thinking about the jailer, here's one, another thing we know about this man. Because of his military background, he was a brutal person. Now, notice he's just been told in verse 23 to guard Paul and Silas carefully. But you'll notice in verse 24, he does something that he's not been told to do. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. First of all, he didn't wash their wounds. He didn't bandage them up. As I said, they were wounded, they were bleeding, there would have been broken bones. And he actually doesn't do anything kind for them until after he's been converted, till after he's become a follower of Jesus. Secondly, he puts them at this point in the inner cell. So they've got no light, no fresh air. And then, we're told, most importantly, he fastens their feet in the stocks. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of stocks, I tend to think of the stocks that we had here for our street party during the Queen's Diamond Jubilee in 2012. We had wooden stocks outside here, which we put people in, and then we threw wet sponges at them. Jolly good fun. And I actually had a go at going in the stocks and having wet sponges thrown at me as well. And that's what I think about when I think of stocks. Well, I want you to banish that image completely. Because what we're talking about here, really, that is not the reality of it at all. The stocks that Paul and Silas were placed in would have been a form of torture. And they would have been a form of torture because, quite simply, when you were locked in the stocks, your limbs, your legs particularly, were splayed at an angle that was far beyond the angle that they should reach. Therefore, very quickly, you'd get terrifying leg cramps and muscle cramps. So they're beaten, they're bleeding, there's broken bones, and now they're being given this this torture in the stocks. It was unnecessarily cruel. And the jailer hasn't been asked to do this. But I suspect what he was trying to do was to simply ingratiate himself to the magistrates, to the authorities. He knows that they don't have a very high opinion of Paul. They don't like Paul and Silas very much. So he thinks, well, I'll really pile it on here and that way I'll ingratiate myself to the the authorities. Now, the only other thing to notice at this point is that Paul has in the Philippian jailer someone who he's not able to go and talk to about Jesus. He's not able to to put the gospel into words. Where Lydia was concerned at the beginning, you um, you have somebody who was a seeker. She's reading the Old Testament and and searching for God at the point where Paul meets her. Uh, And therefore he's able to talk to her explicitly about Jesus and about the Gospel. She's a Gentile seeker. Then you've got this slave girl. Well, she's not exactly seeking, but she is a spiritually very troubled young lady under the, the demon possession. And Paul is able to go and use words. He's able to confront the situation in the name of Jesus. But this jailer, he needs a completely different approach. Paul doesn't begin by talking to him about Jesus. He doesn't try to get the gospel across in words. What Paul realises very quickly he's going to have to do is he's going to have to show this man 
the power of the gospel at work in his own life. And, of course, the power of the gospel at work in Silas's life as well. And this is what happens. The jailer comes to see the power of the gospel at work in, the, in these two gentlemen's lives. First, he sees that in the face of suffering, they show great peace and joy. And secondly, in the face of cruelty, they show tremendous kindness and forgiveness. And this is what the jailer is able to see as he looks at Paul and Silas. First of all, in their suffering, he sees peace and joy. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. This is a huge understatement. What the, uh, the original text actually says to us is that the other prisoners were fascinated. The other prisoners were riveted. And the other prisoners were amazed that Paul and Silas, in the face of what they'd suffered, were actually doing this. And here's why they were amazed. In this culture, in Jesus' culture, uh, normal behaviour was that if you were angry, you expressed it very loudly. If you were in despair or you were uh, suffering great sadness, you expressed it very loudly. For example, you didn't go to a funeral in those days without seeing people wailing, really gutturally wailing loudly, screaming, crying. If you were angry, the curses and the, and the, uh, and the screaming and the shouting that went on was extremely vocal. This is amazing to them because it is culturally so untypical. How do they deal with their pain and their suffering? They're praying and they're singing hymns to God. They're not wailing, they're not cursing. And everybody who can hear it is rightly amazed. And of course, the jailer sees what's going on. And first of all, this jailer sees in the face of suffering, joy and peace. But what is even more amazing is in the face of this unnecessary cruelty that he's dealt them, he saw kindness and forgiveness. Verses 26 and 27. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. Yeah, I bet he did. We don't quite know where he was. Maybe he was in the jail, maybe he was uh, bunking somewhere um, adjacent to the jail, I don't know. But from his vantage point, he sees the prison doors open and he draws his sword and he's right on the cusp of killing himself. Why was he about to kill himself? Quite simply because if you were a prison jailer and you lost your prisoners or they escaped, then you would face execution. And you have to remember that this jailer is living in a shame and honour culture. And he knows that to be had up for letting the prisoners go and to be executed accordingly was a shameful way to exit this world. So he thinks, I'm not going to hang around and wait for the shame of execution. I'll take the honourable way out. I'll throw myself on my sword. And he's just about to do that when Paul calls out and says, look, we're still here. Paul and Silas haven't left. Not only have they not left, but they've kept all the other prisoners there as well. And the reason, of course, then that the jailer calls for the lights and rushes in and and falls trembling before Paul and Silas is he knows that he has been unnecessarily cruel to them. And he knows that he has tortured them. And he knows that they have had a wonderful opportunity to get back at him, to repay him. What an opportunity they had. Leave the prison and he either gets executed 
or he kills himself. That's the choice that confronts him. All they had to do was walk out. They had been treated cruelly. It was unjust. And as we're going to see in a moment, it was without a trial. That was illegitimate. They could have left. They could have let everybody leave. But they were not wanting to repay evil with evil. No, they overcame evil with good. They treated the merciless with mercy. They treated the unkind with kindness. They forgave. And he was amazed. And he fell down trembling. In 2006, in America, there was a young man who went one day with a gun into an Amish school. And he took a group of hostages and he then proceeded to kill five of those hostages who were all young girls aged between 7 and 13. Having killed those hostages, he then turned the gun on on himself and shot himself. That evening, that very evening of that day, members from the Amish community went to the parents of the man who had committed the murders and then shot himself and said, look, we've lost children in this attack You've lost a child because he shot himself and we know that you're going to suffer an awful lot from here on in because of what your son has done and we just want you to know we forgive your son and we want to reach out and be there for you. We want to support you. And as news of what they'd done spread, people were amazed. And the young man who'd shot the young girls and then killed himself had also been married and had a wife with three young children. And on the day of his funeral, again, a lot of members of the Amish community turned up at the funeral and said, we just want to support you through this. And it raised questions across America. How could they have forgiven like that? How could they have done that? How could they have repaid evil with good? How do they forgive the murderer? Well, four years later, four secular sociologists decided to write a book together called Amish Grace. And they studied the events of what had occurred and they actually spoke to those who had been taken hostage because there were ten hostages taken, five were killed. They spoke to the remaining five hostages about what had happened. And the five all spoke of one little girl who said, kill me and let the others go free. And here's what the sociologists wrote when they came to write the book. They said, the Amish believed Jesus Christ died on the cross and died forgiving his murderers. As a result, to be a Christian is to have that at the very centre of your life. There is no other religion in the world that has a man dying for his enemies on the cross as the central principle of their faith. And they said that they believed, secular sociologists, they believed that that was the first reason as to why the Amish were able to forgive. The second reason they went on to say was this. Forgiveness is an act of self-renunciation. You're renouncing your right to have payback. For the sake of the gospel and for the sake of other people, I'm not going to seek payback. I'm going to forgive. Forgiveness is an act of self-renunciation. And then they went on to state, we live in a culture of self-assertion. And of course they're talking about American culture, but they could just easily have been writing about British culture. Every American child is told, you have to assert yourself. Your freedom and your rights are important. And the sociologist said Christianity is all about saying, I deny myself for other people. 
They added, America is now a consumerist, individualistic culture, and it's a culture of self-assertion. If you harm people in a culture of self-assertion, their response will be revenge. But in the counterculture of self-renunciation, which is what Christians should be and what the Amish were, when you harm them, their response is forgiveness. They said, do not think our secular culture will ever respond the way these people did. And that was secular sociologists writing that about Christians and Christianity. Now you see, intuitively, the jailer understands this. He knows Paul and Silas have something that he doesn't have. He knows that they have a power that he doesn't have. He knows that the the ability to forgive shows a connection to someone that he doesn't have. He saw the power of God in their lives and secondly, he saw the power of God in the earthquake. And he comes running in and he's falling down and he's saying, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? I need this God. I saw the power of your God in your lives because of the way in which you handled suffering and in the way in which you handled a persecution. And and now I see the power of this God in the earthquake and I want to be saved. I want to have a relationship with this God. How do I have a relationship with this God? What must I do to be saved? You know, anybody that has real self-awareness will find themselves asking this question at some point in their life. What do I have to do to be rescued? You know, every group of Alcoholics Anonymous in the world, every group of Narcotics Anonymous in the world follow the same 12 steps. And the first step is, uh, came to, admitted we were powerless over drugs or alcohol and came to believe that our lives were unmanageable. That's the first step. What must I do to be saved? And every person growing up in our society is today is told, you can handle your problems. You have what it takes within you to handle your problems. And every group of AA in the world and the Bible knows that this is a lie. We do not have within us what it takes to handle our own problems. We cannot rescue ourselves. Who can rescue me? What must I do to be saved? That's a question Everybody needs to ask. Everybody should ask. But isn't it interesting the way that the Philippian jailer asks it? What must I do to be saved? What must I do? You see, he's a man of action. He expects that if he's going to get God's salvation, he's going to have to do something. He's going to have to earn it. And do you remember last year we looked at Naaman, the Syrian general, And uh, we saw in that story, as we looked at it, that Naaman was a a Syrian general. He was a man of great valour, of great action, courage. Uh, He was a military man. And he gets leprosy and he's told, if you want your leprosy healed, then you're going to have to be healed by the God of Israel. And if you're going to be healed by the God of Israel, then you're going to have to go down to Israel. You're going to have to talk to the prophet Elisha. So he goes down and he talks to the prophet Elisha. And Elisha says, yeah, sure, go and wash yourself in the river Jordan. And Naaman is absolutely furious about this. I said, go wash myself in the Jordan. I expected I was going to have to go and slay a dragon. I thought I was going to have to rescue a princess from a tower. What do you mean just go and wash myself in that dirty river? A five-year-old could do that. Yeah, that's the point, Naaman. A five-year-old could do that. Do you see, the answer to what must I do to be saved 
It comes to the jailer in the same way it came to Naaman. He wanted to hear, here are 50 things you need to do. And all Paul says to him is, believe in what Jesus has already done. Believe. Just believe in what he's done for you. In other words, salvation is free. That's the reason why Elisha said to Naaman, just wash. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter whether you're good or bad. It doesn't matter whether you're strong or weak. It doesn't matter. Just wash. You know, Jesus, when he was talking to Nicodemus famously in John chapter 3, is explaining to Nicodemus the need for being born again. And suddenly in the middle of this conversation, Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, As Moses raised up the bronze serpent on a pole in the wilderness, so when the Son of Man is lifted up, all who believe in him will have eternal life. Why does Jesus bring up that strange incident in the middle of this deep spiritual conversation with Nicodemus? It's there in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. It's about a time when the Israelites rebel against God and as a result they are smitten with a plague and they're dying of this disease and they cry out to God in repentance and say, save us. And God says to Moses, okay, I want you to put a bronze serpent up on a pole. And um, I don't know if you... I didn't realise until recently, I used to see this chemist when I was on holiday and it always had on its sort of neon sign, this serpent. And I thought, what's, what's the serpent got to do with a chemist? I realise the serpent is actually officially a symbol to do with the medical profession. So I learned something there. So anyway, so he, uh, he, says, he says, look, the point is, God says to Moses, put that up and anybody who looks at it will be healed. You see what God's done? You know, some people will be stronger, some people will be weaker. Some of the stronger ones could probably get up and go over and talk to the bronze serpent or touch the bronze serpent. Some were too weak, they wouldn't be able to. So God levels it and he says, just look at it and you'll be healed. Everybody can do that. All he had to do was look. Jesus says, my salvation is like that. All you have to do is look. Tough guy, jailer, rippling muscles, big sword, ready to do. All you have to do is look. You could be a child, you could be a five-year-old, you could be someone who's elderly and infirm and needs a walking frame. The salvation of Jesus Christ is free. What must I do? Just believe in the one who has already done it for you. You know that... um, I've told you many times, and it's true, that Spurgeon's College is the best theological college in the world. And of course it is. You don't laugh, it's true. And uh, of course it was, uh, it was founded by the man himself, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's a great man. And it's a huge ministry. But uh, when Charles Spurgeon was 16, 17 years old, he was spiritually seeking. He was seeking God, seeking answers. And that led him, uh, during the course of time, to various churches. There was one snowy night in January when he found himself walking through thick snow to a small Methodist church, which is still there in Artillery Street in Colchester. And uh, it was January 1850, and there was this great snowstorm. And as a result, only 12 people turned up in the church that night. And sadly, the preacher wasn't able to get there either. And Spurgeon found his way in there, and the, the 12 who were there picked on this guy who Spurgeon says was a, you know, a fairly simple man who spoke with a thick Essex accent. And they said to him, you're doing the sermon. 
So he went up to the pulpit, he'd never preached before, and he hadn't prepared anything. They thought, you know, you've got to have a sermon, so I better have a go at this. And Spurgeon recalls what happened that day when he said this. He said, the man opened the Bible to Isaiah 45, verse 22, and read, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And the man began like this. He said, my dear friends, this is a simple text indeed. It says, to be saved, we only need to look. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. You needn't have gone to college to look. Even a child can look. You needn't be worth a thousand pounds a year to look. Anyone can look. And then he said, ah, but then the text says, look unto me. Aye, now many of us are looking to ourselves, but it's no use looking there. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man lifted up his arms. Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I'm ascended to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the right hand of the Father. Oh, look unto me. And the good man had gone on for a few minutes like that, actually gone on for about as long as he could. And then Spurgeon says, he saw me sitting there and he recognised that I was a stranger there in their midst because there were so few of us. And he fixed his eyes on me and he said, young man, you look very miserable. And you will always be miserable in life and in death if you don't obey my text. Young man, you have nothing to do but to look and live. And Spurgeon said, the blow struck home. And I saw it. I saw it at once. I'd been waiting to do 50 things to find God. But when I heard the word look, the cloud was gone. Spurgeon said this. He said, it was like the brazen serpent that had been lifted up. The people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I looked and looked and looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. See, what Spurgeon found that night in Colchester and what Paul has just told the Philippian jailer is this. What must I do? Just believe in the one who did it for you. Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. What's the result? He believes. The Philippian jailer believes. But do you, do, you, do you know how we know he believes? i tell you how we know he believes. Because there are these little marks. They're little, but they're important marks. They are the marks of authentic saving faith. Look at verses 33 and 34 with me. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all of his household were baptised. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy. Here's the three things. First, real gospel faith makes you compassionate. Even if you weren't compassionate in the first place. You know, we've got a tough guy, like the Philippian jailer, and he's washing wounds. He's showing compassion. Secondly, gospel faith makes you committed both to ministry and to the community of God, the family of God. He doesn't hold this to himself. He passes it around. His family there. He's sharing what he knows with those that he loves. 
He gets baptised, which is being baptised into the community of faith, publicly identifying with Jesus and with the community of faith. You see, look, yes, Christianity is personal, but it's never private. Christianity is personal, but it's never private. He identifies, he shares with those he loves. And thirdly, the gospel, real gospel faith, gives you great joy. And he has this joy. Now I want to finish by doing this. I want to finish with three important lessons that we get, not just from Acts in this passage, but actually Acts, the whole of chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 tells us about these three people. Lydia, the cosmopolitan, well-off person. The slave girl, who's a wreck and a marginalised person. And the Philippian jailer, who's probably somewhere in the middle. And these are three people whose lives Christ changed. And do you know how different these people are? Think about this. Here's a list of the differences. Racially, they're different. One was an Asian one was a Greek and one was a Roman. Uh, Lydia is, uh, is, the, is, is Asian. Uh, the slave girl was Greek and the Philippian jailer was a Roman. So racially, they're different. Economically, they're different. Lydia was upper class. The slave girl was lower class. And the jailer's middle class. So economically, there's difference. Socially, socially, they're different. Uh, you know, one was a social insider, Lydia, one was a social outsider, and that was the, uh, the slave girl. And one was sort of in the middle, was the jailer. One was spiritually open, Lydia. One was demonically hostile, the slave girl. And one was just plain indifferent, the jailer. One was gentle, one was brutal, and one was mental, you know, they're about as different as, as people can be uh, in every way, racially, socially, economically, spiritually. They're different genders. They're different everything, basically. What does that mean? Okay, here's the three lessons. The first lesson is the gospel is for everybody. The gospel is for everybody. In fact, everybody, everyone needs the gospel. You know, I hear people saying, oh, you know, there, there are some people who are the Christian type. No, there aren't. There is nobody who is the Christian type. It's not for the moral or the broken, because I guess that's what they mean when they say, well, they're the Christian type. They're either very moral in the first place or they're broken, so they need this. You know, it changes anyone. It has changed anyone and everyone. Here's why. Because it's true. Therefore, it's true for everyone. You know, we live in a culture today that says, well, if it works for you, then it's true for you. But actually, if it isn't true, if the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection isn't the truth, then it wouldn't work for anyone. If it is true, then it works for everyone. The gospel is for everybody. Christianity couldn't and wouldn't work. Secondly, the gospel is the most single, most unifying power on the face of the earth. You know, this is a power that is so great it can bring diverse human beings together. And nothing does that better than the gospel. And look at, look at this verse 40. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. I love this verse. After they get out of prison, they go to Lydia's house and they met with the brothers and sisters. You know, who, who's this meeting at Lydia's house here? 
This is the church. This is the church that's been planted in Philippi. And all the converts, we're told, were there. That means now, in Lydia's house, worshipping side by side, you've got Lydia, the slave girl, and a Philippian jailer. A woman, a slave, a Gentile. How much more clear can the Bible be that pedigree means absolutely nothing? Just wash, just look. Social class means absolutely nothing. Gender means absolutely nothing. In other words, God says, through the gospel, God says, you're mine. And it doesn't matter whether you're good or bad. It doesn't matter whether you're weak or strong. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what you've done. Grace means pedigree means absolutely nothing. And here's the third and the final thing. The gospel is true freedom. Did you notice something at the end of it? I found this, I promise I won't go on much longer. Right at the end, this is fascinating. It can be a bit confusing. Paul was a Roman citizen. So was Silas, a Roman citizen. And if you were a Roman citizen, you had a certificate to say you were a Roman citizen. And Roman citizens had rights. Therefore, Paul and Silas could have appealed against this. And also, Roman citizens had a right to a trial, which they were never given. Here's the real question. Why didn't Paul invoke the Roman citizenship card? Why, Why did he endure the beating and the jail and the torture that he did, when he could have actually avoided all of that by playing the trump card and saying, I'm a Roman citizen? And okay, that's the first question that that got to me. But the second one is even greater. If he decides not to, and there's a reason, fair enough, why then at the end does he suddenly play the card and say, hang on a minute, I'm a Roman citizen? Well, most commentators are in agreement with this. This is just brilliant leadership on Paul's part. Brilliant leadership. Paul knew that the Philippian Christians were in a very, very vulnerable position. He knew that they were going to have to undergo, almost certainly, the same treatment that had been meted out to him. Persecution, mob violence, beatings, jail, etc., etc. He knew that they would probably have to do that. So in the first place he says, I'm going to stand there with you. I'm not going to exempt myself from this. I'm going to stand shoulder to shoulder with you in this. And I thought, yeah, I get that. Paul wants to say, I'm in this with you. The church, the infant church in Philippi is important. I love the church. I'm going to stand there shoulder to shoulder with you. So I get that. So why does he bring it up at the end then? Why doesn't he just let it go if that's what he wants to do? Well, it's another act of brilliant leadership. And it's another act of Paul's love for the church. He wants to rattle the magistrates. He's scaring them. They are scared. They know what they've done to a Roman citizen was going to land them in an awful lot of trouble. At best, they would lose their jobs. At worst, they'd end up being beaten and jailed the same way he was. And what Paul is saying by now playing this card at the end and saying, don't try and get rid of me quietly. You know what you've done. Come down here and talk to me. He wants them to think twice about ever throwing another Philippian Christian in prison again. He wants them to think, wait a minute, do you remember what happened last time we did that? It didn't work out well for us. It's brilliant. He went to prison for the sake of his people, for the sake of the church. Actually, what Paul doesn't know at this point is he actually went to prison for the sake of the Philippian jailer as well. And what happens is he shows us the true freedom of the gospel. Paul was in chains. Paul was in the stocks, tortured, but he was singing. 
Even though he was in chains physically, he was free. I'll tell you why he was free. If the meaning of your life, if the greatest love of your life, if the greatest hope of your life is built on a relationship, is built on a career, is built on good health, is built on status, then when the tough times come, when the suffering comes, it will rob you of that. It will devastate you because the suffering can take those things away. But if the main thing in your life is God, if your self-worth, if your hope, if who you are, if your meaning in life is built upon who you are in Jesus Christ, then no amount of suffering can ever take that away from you. And that is freedom. That's the reason why Paul in the stocks and in chains was singing, because he was free. Paul, though physically in chains, is actually the free one. And the jailer, though actually physically free, is the one who's enslaved. And he comes to discover that. Therefore, there's a sense in which Paul is saying here, we stayed here, yet the earthquake opened up the jail, we could have gone. But we're still here. Do you know why we're still here, Mr. Jailer? We're still here because we have the freedom. We're free from our past. There's no guilt. We're free from fear of the future because we know where we're going. We're free right here in the present because no suffering can take away from us the hope that we have. We're free. Free to sing in the dark. Do you see the irony of this? By being put in chains, they showed the world, what real freedom was. And the jailer was freed because Paul went to prison. Because Paul lost his freedom, the jailer found his freedom. In a sense, Paul was walking in the footsteps of his own saviour, who was confined so that we could be liberated. Who wasn't just put in prison, who was executed so we could go free. Dear friends, the gospel, the gospel can change anyone. Jesus was beautiful enough for Lydia. Jesus was powerful enough for the slave girl. And Jesus was practical enough for the jailer. Who knows, once he liberates you, just imagine what you could be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious truth of the gospel. Help us to build our hope, our self-worth, our meaning upon you, that no suffering might rob us of that. Lord, help us as we prepare to take bread and wine together, to know that in these gospel symbols we can have freedom and strength new life and joy. Help us to know that in our hearts. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing.